It's a pretty common thing to have a favorite song. Maybe it's the song that played the first time you got behind the wheel of a car, or the soundtrack to your first slow dance, or the one you cranked at full volume the day you finally faced something that you dreaded and found out that you could come out the other side intact. Maybe it's just something you heard once and really liked. For some songs, though, I feel like there's a moment that crystallizes everything good about the whole thing. It's as though if you were to trim away every other element, you could still get just as much enjoyment as if you sat through the entire production. Think about the first time you heard Roger Daltrey scream at the apex of Love Rain Over Me by The Who. Or Springsteen counting off just before the guitar break in Born to Run. What about when Susanna Hoff's voice drops a little and she says, Come on, honey, in Manic Monday. For me, it's the guitar break in Paul McCartney's Band on the Run. Just as the song moves out of its second part, as it prepares to move into the strummier final act, there's this gnarly guitar riff that signals a dramatic change in tempo and tone. It's like a mini song in itself, only lasting a few seconds, but it's often the only part of the song I want to hear. If I get in the car and Band on the Run comes on the radio, and that moment has already passed, I'm probably not interested in hearing the rest. I want that moment, that ascendant guitar riff, fuzzy and defiant, as if it was the moment a shovel was digging a tunnel to freedom and finally breaks through into the open expanse of possibility. That's what I want. That's what I want to hear and where I want to be. Welcome to Curated Content. Act 1. This is a story about breaking. It's not a story about anything being shattered or busted up. It's a story about breakdancing. More specifically, it's a story about trying to breakdance poorly, despite my best efforts. First, though, a little history about the breaks and the would-be breaker. I grew up in a town that, at the time, would have been considered an exoburb, just on the fringes of the Oklahoma City metropolitan area. True, we were only minutes away from a large Air Force base, but the community's rural ties were still on display when we arrived in 1983. We had a pasture across the street, for example. It had cattle, and it would catch fire annually which led to some confusion as to which fire department would handle the situation. Was it the jurisdiction of the town, or was it out in the county, unincorporated? It would have stood to reason that my introduction to the world of personal expression through dance would have been something closer to that of my friends at school, many of whom were learning to two-step and could do it as though they'd done it from birth. No, the moves that called to me were less boot scootin' boogie and more boogie down Bronx. I couldn't tell you when I first discovered hip hop or breakdancing, but I suspect it may have been through the magic of electric boogaloo. During my elementary years, I found myself hanging out with a cousin who was a year, a little over a year, older than me. And much of that time included afternoons parked in front of a television set, taking advantage of the stack of VHS tapes her older brothers had rented. I 
don't remember everything we saw beyond the Goonies and the never-ending story. But I do remember a copy of Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo prominently placed atop a stack next to their VCR. The funny thing is, I'm not sure if that's where I watched Breakin' 2. I do remember being excited by the name and watching for it in the TV guide. I remember seeing it and being wowed by the dancing up the walls sequence in which one of the dancers pops, locks, and proceeds to break dance his way along the wall, up the ceiling, back down the other side. I was fascinated with this style of dancing and with its soundtrack, rap. I was hungry for anything I could find that might grant me entrance into this mythical world of b-boys if just for a moment. In central Oklahoma in the 1980s, this was all still a curiosity, and any sort of authentic artifact of it or its attending culture was difficult to come by. If I happened to stumble upon a Mantronics track, it was a rare and glorious thing indeed. I was much more likely to hear Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks knocking off Rockbox with a gimmicky song for their Dragnet film than I was to hear Run DMC doing the thing properly. I was grateful for the scraps. And so, it was a feast for my young brain when I discovered that the secrets to b-boy glory could be found in my school's library. In my elementary years, I practically lived in the media center. The rows of three-shelf bookcases were there to be explored, and I was not about to miss out on some secret bit of knowledge that could be found there. I had permission on file to check out more books than usual and could take home reference volumes overnight, which led to a binge on the World Book Encyclopedia. In hindsight... I shouldn't have been surprised that the media center would hold the key to Breakin, but I still remember feeling like I had discovered the warp zone in Super Mario Brothers for the first time. A book called Breakdancing, Mr. Fresh and the Supreme Rockers Show You How to Do It, that's with an exclamation point, seemed to call to me from the shelf. I remember holding the book close to my face on the bus ride home, immersed in Mr. Fresh's wisdom, absorbing it as if he was Mr. Miyagi in an Adidas tracksuit. He provided a wealth of background on the early days of Breakin', tracing it back to James Brown and the Goodfoot, and leading it up to the scene as it stood in 1984, the year of the book's publication. Oh, there were flubs here and there, I would learn later. He credited Sheik as The Sheiks, for example but he had a depth of knowledge that blew my little mind. I remember entering my parents' kitchen with a purpose that afternoon. The linoleum was patterned with a brick pattern, a trompe l'oeil intended to give the room a more rustic feel and a textured surface, but it was as good and slick a surface as I was going to find anywhere in the house. I cracked open the book once again, this time turning straight to the moves. I attempted something called the crazy legs. I tried to backspin. I tried to worm. I accomplished none of these things. And so, my dream of joining the Supreme Rockers died a lonesome death in my mother's kitchen. 
I got about a quarter of a spin. My worm was something like a belly flop. I still don't know what the crazy legs was supposed to look like. I would have other misadventures in hip-hop, like the time I tried to scratch on my little shelf stereo's turntable using the Rocky score. It was the only instrumental I could find. Or the way I tried to beatbox after seeing the fat boys in the movie Disorderlies. And I'd never really lose my appreciation for breakdancing, though I admired it more from afar now. Much like Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel LaRusso, there are some things you just can't get from a book. Act 2. Let's go back. Way back. It's an autumn night in the late 1980s, and it's definitely a Friday. My family has gone to get pizza as an end-of-the-week treat, picking up our pies at Vito's Pizza in Midwest City, a place run by a friend of my dad's. My brother and I are on our best behavior, and for good reason. If it all plays out perfectly, we know that our next stop will be to pick out videos next door at Magic Movies. Today, it's iTunes and Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and any number of streaming options beamed directly into our homes. Prior to that, the blue and yellow blockbuster sign was the signal for home entertainment. But in the beginning, at the dawn of the video era, the discerning viewer's options were a little more idiosyncratic. The mom-and-pop video rental store was, at one point, a staple. Within a three-mile radius, videos could be found at Magic Movies, at Pop and Go, at Paradise Video, even at the Brandon Mobley IGA Grocery, and each one seemed to be curated in their own unique way. My family tended to frequent Magic Movies and the grocery store more than others simply out of geographic convenience. We were at the eastern part of the county, and these were the locations that were the closest, pure and simple. When Magic Movies opened a store in my town, just down the street from my house, that became our store of choice. The policy was this. There would be a newer release rented for the entire family to watch as we ate our pizza. Beyond this, my parents might rent something that they wanted to see, but either wasn't of interest or appropriate for my brother and me, depending on their whims. But if we had been well-behaved, my brother and I would get to pick out an older movie to watch the next day. I couldn't tell you why we made the choices we did but I'm pretty certain that the major factors were genre, the only one we ever agreed on completely was comedy, and often cover art. Some of our choices were dubious even then. There's no way I'd recommend anybody spend time with an Ernest movie beyond Ernest Goes to Camp, even back then. But there were some real gems in the mix, and we came back to our favorites often. Why we didn't just purchase copies of The Monster Squad or Weird Al Yankovic's magnum opus UHF, I'll never know. But we were more than happy to put those tapes on the rental counter again and again and again. Those days are long gone now. Even Blockbuster, the slayer of the mom and pop, has died its own inglorious death. 
we don't interact with the counter clerk or hold it over our kid's head that if they're good, they'll get to pick out a video. It's hard to incentivize this when even elementary-aged kids know about Netflix. Magic Movies closed, and its shopping plaza location was subdivided to accommodate a consignment store and a donut shop. I'm a parent myself now, and I like treating my family to pizza on Friday nights when possible. There isn't a movie rental in our week, though, and it makes me a little sad that my kid won't have that same sense of discovery and the exciting possibility that if she's been good, there will be that special trip to pick out something herself. I can offer her the movies we loved as kids, and she's enjoyed some of them. She liked UHF. But the sense of wonder is lacking when it's Dad making the suggestions. Make no mistake, we've got a breathtaking number of selections available at our fingertips, and there really is something incredible about that. But I can't help feeling like a little bit of the magic has escaped, and I don't know if it will ever come back. Act 3. There's a movie theater down the street from my neighborhood. There are 20 screens, an IMAX auditorium, and the seats are plush recliners in every room. There are tiers staggered in a stadium manner, giving audiences an unobstructed line of sight. There are concession stands in the main lobby and in each wing. It's a really nice place to see a movie, if a little pricey, and it's been my default for big releases since moving to Tulsa. There's also an art theater downtown. It's been lovingly restored and updated to provide an elegant film-going experience. There's a beautiful, stylish marquee out front, and the management carefully curates each month's screening schedule. Its clientele appreciates the attention to detail. That there has been... So much thought put into this theater's resurrection. And they're loyal. They come back for small releases, historic films, film that is art. I love going to the movies, but I'll never recapture the experience of seeing a movie as a kid. And there's just no love for the sort of theater that I frequented as a child. When my parents deemed a new release worthy of full price for a family of four, we would usually catch a screening at the Heritage Park 3, a theater located in Midwest City's Heritage Park Mall. There were three tiny screening rooms with rows of folding seats on a slight incline, and the three screens hosted alternating showings of the latest Hollywood hits. The carpet was a red, black, and gold pattern depicting the comedy and tragedy masks as well as what appeared to be an Oscar statuette, though I can't say that we saw much Oscar bait in those rooms. Films were shown with glorious Dolby 2.0 stereo. It was a passport to another world. A little later on, a five-screen theater opened across the street, though the amenities weren't much better. The screen was a little bigger, and the rooms could hold a few more rows, and the carpet was a little less dingy, but that was about it. More often than not, a night at the movies meant a visit to the Apollo Twin, the second-run theater down the road from the mall. 
The Apollo was a no-frills affair, but tickets cost a fraction of the heritage screens, and it gave us a chance to catch movies that we might have missed the first time around. The last screening we caught at the Apollo was in the fall of 1989, when my dad took my brother and I to see Ghostbusters 2. That evening is etched into my brain for a number of reasons. I know we were incredibly excited to see a new Ghostbusters, especially after missing it the first time around that summer. And we'd listened to the soundtrack over and over again. We'd memorized Bobby Brown's hit single. We puzzled over where each song might fit into the actual story. A quick refresher for anyone who has forgotten. The third act of Ghostbusters 2 revolves around an evil river of slime overtaking New York City. The pink, viscous mass eventually creeps up and coats the Metropolitan Museum of Art, encasing it in this sickly pink-purple shell. As this sequence played out in front of us, I started to wiggle a little in my seat, and I felt a catch. I reached back, thinking that maybe the hip pocket of my jeans had gotten caught on a busted hinge in the seat, only to find something sticky and tenacious holding on to my butt. A used wad of bubblegum gave me a shock that night that would have made old William Castle proud. The enjoyment of the film gave way to the embarrassment of walking through the lobby and out to my dad's car with a napkin adhered to the seat of my pants. And I never again saw a movie at the Apollo Twin. Within months, it became a furniture store. And the furniture store became a firing range. And it never again screened films. Although they kept the basic frame of the old Apollo sign out by the street for several years to come. If Apollo was the Greek god of light, it seemed that he had let the one behind those two projectors flicker long enough to burn into my memory, and not a second more. Curated content is recorded in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the shadow of the Golden Driller. Today's episode was written, produced, recorded, and edited by Michael Ross, whom you're listening to now. He also performed our interstitial music. Find new episodes of curated content every Monday at iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, rate and review us. Your feedback is valuable, and your ratings help others find us. Visit our website at modernsuburbanite.com slash modsub, where you will find archived shows, show notes, and other information about projects. You can also choose to support curated content through our donor portal. Every little bit helps. Learn more at the website. Connect with curated content on Twitter, where we are at content show, or reach us through email. Our address is curatedc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, whether you're curious about sponsorship opportunities or just want to let us know what you think. Join us next time for more dives into half-remembered material and the unexpected threads running through our brains encoding. This concludes our visit to the mixed-up files deep in the memory banks. Be well and stay curious. <laughs>